Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario is moving on to phase three of the recovery plan. Well, most of Ontario. Hamilton is being left out. Still in phase two. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us to talk about that. And Premier Ford called them health care heroes, yet he's introduced legislation that restricts an awful lot of the freedoms uh, for health care workers. We'll give you the background on that. And what's happening down south in the U.S.? COVID cases on the rise in many states, and the president appears to be busier than ever going after Dr. Anthony Fauci. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We uh, told you on the program yesterday, uh, Premier Doug Ford has announced that uh, the province, lots of the province, most of the province, is moving into what they call stage three of our recovery plan after COVID-19. Hamilton is not included in that number, again, which is uh, a little surprising. Joining us to talk about the Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is uh, going to join us right now on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the uh, the implications of that. Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Uh, great to be with you, Bill. Thank you. Were you surprised, uh, Mayor, Mr. Mayor, that uh, that Hamilton was not on the list yesterday? No, and uh, this has been a, a, a con- consistent pattern in terms of how they've been opening things up uh, in Ontario, and so they've essentially taken the golden horseshoe in areas that have uh, higher cases. I think Windsor-Essex fits into that. And have uh, made them the kind of next step into, uh, you know, the phased opening process that they've evolved. So all along, they've been doing that in phase one and phase two. Uh, and uh, I, I'm not at all surprised they're doing the same for phase three. Uh, they're saying that higher density areas, uh, you know, ought to be uh, d- done a little bit more cautiously. And they're testing it out in uh, other locations where the cases aren't as high and uh, getting a sense of you know how the public is responding to that and uh, you know if the response is good and uh, in our case load stays where it is which i think has been holding pretty steady of, as of late then uh, a couple of weeks from now we'll be in stage three as well and it gives uh, you know hamilton and toronto and peel and brampton mississauga and others uh, you know time to uh, start looking at what a stage three look like and what do we need to do to get ready for it I'm looking at the numbers here, and this is why I was surprised yesterday that we weren't included in this. And I, I, I kind of get the sense that you know that they just cut and pasted from the announcement they made about stage two and said, "Okay, you guys were exempted then, so you're not going to get in now either." Uh, I, I know there's been over 800 confirmed cases of, of COVID-19 here in Hamilton, but 92 percent of those are now considered to be recovered, uh, and there have been 44 deaths. But uh, when you look at uh, the statistics we have from the hospitals here. Uh, St. Joe's has no COVID cases right now, and Hamilton Health Sciences mm-hmm. said they have fewer than five, which I assume means four. Uh, those are pretty significant, uh, you know, uh, numbers, and it shows that you know we're we're really doing a lot here in this community. I, I, I'm surprised that they still think this is a, a an area that needs a little more time. Well, and I, I think it's it's an area that needs a little more time relative to the processes they've had evolved before. So they're, you're right; they are following a pattern that they've evolved right through uh, the, from the beginning of this as things started to open up, and they're and they're following that pattern. Uh, I'm not so sure it's unwise. Uh, you know, I think we said all along to be be cautious and uh, you know a- evaluate the data from other areas before you step into you know the, the opening it up in other places and you know the impact of opening it up in toronto hamilton mississauga peel um, when that happens the potential for spread uh it goes up exponentially if people aren't doing the right thing so most of these municipalities are now heading towards mandatory masking uh, you know many of them have done it already uh, we're due to we're due to do that on uh this coming Friday, it'll be in effect uh, by Monday, July the 20th. And so given that, uh, you know, that that's a good opportunity for our 
our communities to also be prepared so that when we do open up in a much broader way, that that masking is accepted and, uh, and, and being adopted by the majority of the population, which then minimizes the risk for everyone everywhere. So I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm not bothered by the change. Yeah, the the uh, the medical numbers uh, are good. The citizens of Hamilton have done a terrific job. Uh, I think the uh, the couple of weeks that we may wait for this is going to be good good opportunity for us to prepare and and get the masking uh, mandatory masking in place. And uh, that's certainly going to help when uh, things open up more broadly and people are getting together in the restaurants, even though physically distanced and uh, you know taking all the other precautions. It still means that uh, that the potential for spread d- does go up if the masking and other precautions aren't taking hold the way they have in the past. Let me ask you about the masking. Uh, yep. Would you have preferred that the province actually moved in and said, we're going to make this a province-wide thing as opposed to having each individual municipality do this? It kind of reminds me of, well, you and I were both on city council back in the day when uh, we were attempting to initiate a smoking bylaw. Uh, here mm-hmm. in Hamilton, and got a lot of pushback, as you recall, from uh, from uh, restaurant owners and a lot of other people about this, until the province finally stepped in and said, no, you know what, you're all going to do it. Uh, it's, a lot of people are thinking, you know, the, the, the Ontario government should be doing the same thing now with this uh, on an interim basis and say, look, it masks and right now until we get this thing under control. Uh, they don't seem to want to go down that road, and it puts an awful lot of pressure on local councils. Yeah, that that was an argument we uh, we we kind of put before the government early on, saying uh, you know make it mandatory across the province. Not unlike what Quebec has done, to uh, you know it, it helps alleviate all the different uh, you know mishmash of policies and procedures that municipalities are now enacting. It's not not universal, although we've modeled uh, you know many of the policies uh, in terms of mandatory masking from the, from other municipalities, but. There was no reason to go down that road if the province had had said, like they had said about so many other things. So it's not it's not that they haven't put you know policies and edicts out that we were required to follow. They said close all your parks, uh, close all of your restaurants, uh, close you know all of those closures were emergency orders requiring us to do those very next steps. And uh, and faithfully across the province we did that. Uh, it would have been smart for the province to have said the same about mandatory masking or face covering. Uh, it would have made for a much evener policy across the province and would have you know, avoided a lot of anguish in local municipalities, some 440 of them now, in the, in the province of Ontario, that now each of them have to define and decide what kind of a policy they're going to evoke with and whether it's done through the Board of Health, uh, by the Medical Officer of Health, or through a bylaw. Now, we've, we've chosen the bylaw approach. Uh, but, you know, all of that would have been unnecessary had the province just simply said mandatory masking is in effect for the next three months starting on July, whatever. Uh, unfortunately, they wouldn't do that. Uh, another letter is actually going to uh, the premier uh, as of today by the large urban mayors uh, saying exactly the same thing. Uh, why don't you just enact it across the province, even though many of the major municipalities, at least in the Golden Horseshoe, have already gone down that road. Niagara hasn't, by the way. And so, you know, if you uh, are shopping in Hamilton and you don't want to wear a mask, uh, you can now travel to Niagara and it's not an issue. Uh, and that's the other part of the problem is that, that you, you really don't have a consistent policy and that puts some municipalities at a disadvantage and other ones at an advantage for whatever reason. Well, and, and therein lies the problem. And, and, you know, because the Premier keeps telling us that everything that they're doing now, including moving on to Stage 3, is based on medical information that they're getting from the experts. And I assume that's probably Dr. Mm-hmm. Williams, the Ontario Medical Officer of Health. Uh, right. But they're the ones that are advocating for masking. So I, I can't understand why they don't seem to want to go down that road. 
Yeah, I don't either. And, uh, you know, I think uh, obviously they put their finger in the air and said that, you know, there might be some political heat associated with this. And, uh, you know, do we want to go down that road? Uh, I don't see it any differently than all the other policies and uh, emergency orders that have been delivered before. All of them are, I would say, uh, accepted, but not not all of them universally popular. And, and you'll never be universally popular in this kind of decision. Uh, you know, some people are going to, you know, kudos. And everything I've heard in the broader community so far, uh, you know, wherever I've been, it's been thumbs up. Uh, we think this is the right step to take. It makes me feel more confident to be able to go and do things that I otherwise might not do if I uh, didn't know that masking was mandatory or that someone else was going to wear a mask to protect me and I could protect them. But you know what? Um, uh, that, that horse seems to have left the barn, and I think uh, it's unfortunate. But consistency does matter. Uh, regional differences also matter, though. And I, to be fair to the province, uh, you know, the large centers, Toronto, Hamilton, Mississauga, Peel, Niagara, uh, Ottawa, uh, Kitchener, Waterloo, possibly. You know, those are centers that are that higher density. Uh, you know, I think they ought to be treated somewhat differently than you know some of the more rural areas and towns that uh, you know have, have not seen any cases at all, and uh, likely never will. And so, uh, you know, why do they need to be uh, you know locked down or 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 potentially even masked? Uh, you know, that's a that's a good question. So there could be a regional difference in this. Certainly, in high density areas, it makes perfect sense. And I'm uh, I'm happy to, to see that this council, you know, by a 13 to two vote at the public health board, uh, will will evoke that and pass that policy on uh, Friday. But all of that could have been avoided uh, in each municipality by having at least a consistent policy from the provincial government saying, here's where masking story is mandatory in terms of regions, and here's where it's not. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm glad to hear there's another letter going to the Premier's office from the Large Urban Mayor's Caucus about this. We talked with Burlington Mayor Mary Ann Mead Ward about this yesterday, and of course, as you know, their council uh, passed the bylaw uh, yesterday, I guess it was. So they're moving forward on this. Let me ask you about Stage 3, and, and probably next week, or maybe at the latest the week after that, we'll be included in that and move on to Stage 3, uh, which was announced yesterday, and that means uh, Jim's uh, bars, dining, restaurants, movie theaters, and casinos can reopen right now. Team sports and live sporting events can resume, which is a little bit misleading. Uh, that that means you can play, but nobody can go and watch uh, a, a group of more than ten people. Uh, are, are we ready to move and evolve into that phase here? Have you talked about this with uh, with Paul Johnson and Dr. Richardson and others about how this is going to shape up and how it's going to look in Hamilton? Yeah, we have a we have a pretty good idea of uh, how how we're going to map that out, and uh, that that work has been undergoing for quite some time. Uh, it's a, I think it's a matter of getting uh, specifics from the province, which we now have, uh, in terms of what's going to be allowable, and you know the maximum gatherings of uh, fifty uh, in indoors and a hundred outdoors. I think is a, you know it's certainly an extreme limitation for for theaters. So it's all about physical distancing, Silt. So the, the, it's not a matter of let's go fill up the, the all the seats in the theater. You're you're limited to 50 people. Uh, you know any any bar or restaurant, uh, it's not belly up to the bar and uh, you know get drinks and stand shoulder to shoulder with everyone. Uh, it is basically physically distance capacity as well. So size of your 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 restaurant or building matters fortunately and this is why we put such a great push on the outdoor patios for restaurants is it gives them that additional capacity so now that uh, they're able to when they're able to uh, open up their restaurants proper uh, they still will have to be physically distant so that added capacity on the patio that many of them didn't have but now do 
uh, hopefully we'll get them somewhere close to kind of the capacity that they uh, would normally have uh, been used to. And so all of those measures have been coordinated throughout this process to, to anticipate getting to a broader opening that uh, will allow people a little bit more access, but certainly not without the physical distancing and separation and hand washing and masking that uh, that is going to be required all the way through there. And that may, we, that may be with us for, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if there's an end to phase three uh, anytime soon. Uh, I think they, this may be our new norm for, you know, four, five, six months, uh, depending on where the, the status of the virus or the, or the, uh, uh, the vaccination uh, process is, uh, you know, that this could be the new normal for quite some time. Yeah, and we know to that end. I mean, I know they're doing some test runs on some pot- potential vaccines, but the experts still tell us that uh, because of that testing and the process that has to be in place, it's probably going to be uh, early next year before any vaccine is even available right now. And, of course, you also heard from the experts on both sides of the border, but the fact that, you know, when, so we hit into the fall and, and the winter season in uh, November, December of this year, that uh, that's flu season, and there's a possibility of, of a probability, and according to some experts, that there's going to be a, a, a second phase of, of COVID, which is going to really exacerbate everything. So, so we've yeah, got that in front of us, and I know that you're planning. I wanted to ask you though quickly. I guess I know we're a little short on time here. Uh, to your credit, you you reached out to the community and you you, you put a task force together of community members about uh, how we're doing here in Hamilton about well, stage two now and hopefully into stage three in the next few days and everything. What kind of feedback are you getting from them? Uh, you know what, we've had uh, you know two meetings and they, they basically have decided to create a number of task forces for each of the sectors and they're uh, there to report back to, uh, to the overall committee, I believe, in September, early September which I think is, uh, you know, probably good timing in terms of some of the, uh, you know, additional work in terms of economic recovery. And so the whole task force you know, is predicated on getting employment back into, uh, into the workforce uh, at every level and every sector. And so the, the work is going fast and furious. Obviously, we're, we're trying to keep pace with, the, you know, the openings and the phasings of the, the province. We had no way of knowing when that was going to happen. But I, I, I anticipate that this task force is going to be dealing with uh, a whole range of issues that are going to be, uh, you know, short, medium, and long term, uh, relative to this pandemic. And so, uh, I'm hopeful that uh, that we're going to get some recommendations from them in in early September that uh, will help us kind of move forward in terms of our future sustainable city. Uh, you know, to get recommendations from them uh, on the short term has been, uh, you know, obviously been a challenge because they're they're you know, virtual meetings are great. Uh, they're hard way to get productive and that's why it's been broken down into sectors so that these people can meet on a more aggressive basis uh, more frequently and come up with some recommendations now the recommendations could revolve around you know how do you how do we maintain the, the patios if we need to and how long and how do we do it for restaurants uh, you know what kind of employment opportunities come out of this pandemic what kind of policies need to be put in place relative to you know, future, uh, you know, housing developments that uh, that are happening in our city uh, and still happening actually quite successfully, as well as the uh, commercial activity that, uh, you know, may or may not change relative to uh, the, the online, uh, you know, uh, retail that's uh, now growing exponentially. And how do we deal with that going forward that is going to wreak havoc on our local ability to to collect taxes from retail operations that are no longer in, in, in existence and now gone virtual. All of those are going to be uh, unique challenges that we need some uh, direction on. But we don't have 
immediate policies is standing in front of us that we can evoke right now. Well, and one of the concerns I'm heard, I've heard rather from a number of uh, people in the uh, the restaurant industry, especially, is uh, where's the provincial help? You know, the, here are the guidelines. You know, you have to do this. There's a, the physical distancing that has to happen. Uh, maybe you know, plexiglass barriers have to be put up. That's all at the owner's expense, which is rather onerous yep. for some of them. Uh, and I would assume that uh, you've had that discussion with the large urban mayors as well to see. Look, at the province has got to step up here. Yeah, well, I mean, there's two two areas that they need to step up in. Uh, one one is, uh, you know, obviously helping businesses, uh, you know, reestablish themselves, and they could certainly be uh, helpful in terms of putting a fund together that would allow them to access, the, uh, you know, either loans or grants for you know additional costs of the protective equipment, and that's going to be with them for quite some time, and that's certainly an added burden. And secondly, and, and you know, we've talked about this often, is the uh, the helping municipalities not have to pass on a debt load uh, that to get out of the tax base that's going to hit you know all taxpayers at some point that uh, we have to collect to make up the difference. So sixty million dollars to one hundred and twenty million dollars. We're not sure where it ends up. We know it's higher than sixty. Uh, we ask the federal and provincial governments to help this sector as they've helped all the other sectors. Uh, you know, maintain and, and uh, kind of withstand the uh, the shortfalls that uh, we've been experiencing. And you know what? This is going to be a significant challenge for all municipalities right across the country. It is a sector that can't be ignored. And the only avenue for us to uh, to recover those dollars is either through the tax base or severely curtailing our, you know, services in our community. Uh, neither one of them are good options, and neither one of them are going to be helpful for future recovery of our city. And so uh, we continue to ask our federal and provincial partners to uh, put that on their plate and keep it there and make sure they come up with some resolution sooner rather than later. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Mr. Mayor, good luck with that. Uh, we'll stay in touch over the next few days and see uh, what kind of response you get. Uh, stay healthy can and I, can uh, we'll I, talk. Can I, can, I, can I mention that masking is actually going to be helpful in flu season? I'm surprised that we've never actually evoked that, but certainly it would be very, very helpful. Okay, we'll uh, follow up on that as well. Thanks so much, Mr. Mayor. We'll talk again soon. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hospital staffs uh, are furious with what's going on with the Ontario government. Now, let's put this in perspective now. This is the same Ontario government and the same premier that called these people the health care heroes. Uh, not too many weeks ago, and praised the work that people were doing in hospitals and for, and healthcare facilities during the COVID nineteen crisis. Well, then, uh, just the other day, uh, his government, Doug Ford government, introduced legislation Bill one ninety five that well put some serious encumbrances, shall we say, onto a lot of those very same healthcare workers. Dave Murphy is the president of uh, QP seventy eight hundred. Uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us uh, some perspective on what's going on. Uh, Dave, I know it's a busy day for you. You're going to be hooking up with uh, Michael Hurley and others uh, in about an hour or so to talk about this uh, to the media. I really appreciate you taking some time for us this morning. And thank you for having me on, Bill. Appreciate it. Let's let's, let's talk a little bit about about how well, well as once individual explained. You guys kind of feel blindsided by this this new proposed. Now it hasn't passed yet, but uh, this this has some rather onerous clauses in this bill. Yes, exactly. Uh, there was no consultation from the Ford government on this. They just unilaterally decided that they would, uh, you know, they, they stopped the Emergency Procedures and Civil Protection Act, um, which is what we were um, originally put in place for us, where they, the hospital had some certain liberties to take of the collective agreement, which was fair enough. You know, we all had to work together with this, and, and we did. Well, now he's cancelled that, that, uh, that act, yet he's now put the um, 
legislation back into Bill 195, which which uh, gives the hospitals a lot of rights to override collective agreements, which would be they can cancel your vacation, they can cancel your leave of absence. So if you're at home looking after an elderly parent or your children because they're out of school, they can change the, the sick leave, how it's run. They, they have no regard for seniority. They've just overridden it. There's no need for it. You know, they, they went from champs one day, the, the frontline workers, to now they're chumps of the government where they can do whatever they want. And, the, and that's not right. Not right at all. There's, there's been some conflict and, and some controversy about the way the government's handled this uh, right from day one, really, uh, it, when you look back on some of the announcements they've been made and some of the policies, Dave. Uh, and, and it also it seems at, at some point that the message we're getting from Queen's Park is, uh, listen to what I'm saying, don't pay attention to what I'm doing. You know, as, as they're, they're heaping praise on, on your workers for the great job that they have done, and that's very justified, of course, because of what's gone on with COVID. Uh, there were some restrictions that were put in place. Uh, there were some uh, pay raises given to some and not others and said, sorry, you don't qualify, uh, which is just, it, it seems so contrary to what we were expecting this government to do and how they were expecting to, to deal with the, the workers that, that are, in many cases, putting their lives on the line on a daily basis. Yes, exactly. Uh, there, again, he just, uh, the Ford government, the intent was, was right, but the execution was awful. It's terrible. Nobody in the hospitals received any type of uh, pandemic pay. It's caused a lot of stress in the workplace because coworkers would get it. You know, they said the custodians would get it. Well, there is no custodians in the, in the hospitals. Um, that's in the school board sector. We have maintenance staff. We have cleaners. You know, we have different words for them. They're not the language they use. But if they would have, you know, consulted again, it's just frustrating that, you know, you could go into work one day and, uh, you know, you're doing a great job. Then the, the employer says, oh, you're going to work nights tomorrow. So now you've got to scramble for a sitter. You've got to change your hours. You've got to, you know, they could maybe put you at a different site. You know, Hamilton Health Science, we have 11 different sites where they could be uh, put. It's just not right. There's no need for it. The hospital's opening back up, going back to businesses as fair close to usual as you could. Um, so there is no need for this. If there was a second wave, they could institute those measures again. And we've always worked with the employer and the employers worked with us. So there was no need for the, uh, the government to intervene in the collective rights uh, and bargaining for the, uh, for the employees. I don't know what he's trying to do, but he, he needs to stay out of it. They need to amend Bill 195. And it's, you know, I really appreciate you uh, allowing me to come on and having me on because the community is, has been 100% behind the frontline workers. And now it's an assault on those same frontline workers that do need some time off. And the Ford government saying to employers, you can now cancel their time off, make them keep working. You know, that's going to lead to a lot of stress in the workplace. And, and I'm hoping the people of Hamilton and your listeners will phone the, your MPP and tell them to amend this to exclude what they've done to, to violate the rights of the workers, of frontline workers. Well, as our listeners know, I had occasion to use the healthcare system here. I had a couple of surgeries over the, uh, the last few weeks, and uh, on the mend, and everything's fine. But while I was doing that, of course, I had a chance to talk to a lot of the folks in in the hospitals, and the stress level there is just un- overwhelming. I mean, people, if they have not been there and not been in that environment, 
have no idea of, of the kind of pressure that they're under right now, uh, on a daily basis anyway, but then uh, because of COVID-19 and some of the restrictions have gone in. But you know what I found out to a person, Dave, each and every one of the people I talked to there, uh, all said, it, uh, yeah, we, we think it sucks, but it's what has to be done to try to beat this thing and, and to try to maintain this. But the question they're asking now, and you're asking, and I think it's a very valid question, is why are we doing this now? Why introducing this bill at this point? This is not March, you know, and, and nobody's naive enough to say that COVID has gone away. We know it hasn't. But we seem to be taming the beast, and this is not like Arizona or Texas or California where they're starting to spike and they're thinking, oh, my God, what kind of pressure is this going to put on the healthcare system? We're, we're not there, and I, I can't understand the justification for this bill. Not at all, Bill. Um, there's no need other than the government is just trying to in, uh, get into the right of, uh, of unionized environments and workplaces. We've worked hand-in-hand hand, almost every union across the provinces work with their hospital and they put in plants into place and and are waiting for the second wave and god forbid if it does it does return we're ready for it we've got supplies of ppe we've got secondary uh areas where we can put patients if need be we've got floors like we're very well prepared and we understand if we have to move people around at that time and we have to change some shifts we fully understand that, and we will work with the employer and have worked with the employer. And the employer has told us the same thing about this bill. They don't understand it either. There's no need for it. It should never have happened. So, you know, hopefully the, the hospitals and the Ontario Hospital Association, which represents the hospitals in Ontario, will tell the government that too. Um, you always want to have a peaceful relationship uh, and harmony with the employer, and we have that during this time of crisis. But there's no need for the government to be involved and further the crisis of the uh, frontline workers in Ontario. It's shameful by the government to be doing this. Well, and you guys are not the only ones that are complaining about Bill 195 because we, we've talked to other folks in other sectors and, and, frankly, a number of journalists that have covered Queen's Park for many years, and they're asking the very same question. Why, at this point, is the government extending this this basic, their their right to, to be able to impose or to lift uh, certain benefits and, and certain things that you guys have fought for for years and years and years? Uh, this is not a crisis situation. It's a problematic situation right now. But as you've mentioned, we've done a pretty decent job here in Ontario, and even specifically here in the Hamilton area, of working uh, with each other uh, to, you know, to, to spike, to stop the spikes with COVID-19. And, and you know, that's why I think a lot of people were surprised when the government even introduced this legislation, because it, it's really not necessary right now, except, uh, as you say, the, the rather diabolical situation of saying this is just a government that wants more and more power over unions and, and over working people in situations like this. And uh, it, it's right that you push back, but I'd like to hear more voices about this. Absolutely. We're hoping that, you know, we're going to plan, plan some political action. Um, we don't want to impact the community. We don't want to impact the hospitals. We want the Ford government to take notice of what's happening and let them see the, the displeasure. I'm not a fan of Ford, but I think he hasn't done not a bad job at the beginning. But where he's going now, he's really starting to show his true colors. You know, he's dropped the ball on a few issues, but he seems to have been sincere. But in, in this case, he's way out of line, way out of line. There's no need for it to happen. And I don't understand, unless exactly what you said, there's underlying motives. You know, they, they put that 1% cap in earlier on. Last year, that all the public sectors have to. Now, I think he's got the opportunity. In speaking with lawyers and, and different legals, 
this is unheard of in Ontario. It's never happened before in Ontario that a government has done this and taken the advantage and the power that they've been bestowed upon by the people of Ontario and are abusing it totally. We shouldn't be allowed and we shouldn't stand and take it. We have to fight back. Everybody does. Because what's next? If he can get away with it now. He's thinking it's the summertime. Nobody's going to say anything. But we have to prove him wrong. We need the people of Ontario to stand up and voice their opinion and show the support, which I know they will. You raise a very interesting point about this, and I think it's very germane to the conversation here too, Dave. Uh, I don't hear anybody from the healthcare sector, including the administration of healthcare facilities, hospitals around the province, that are saying, yeah, this is a great idea. Uh, they're not looking for this. I mean, I, the, as a matter of fact, quite the contrary, the people I've talked to uh, that are managing hospital facilities, and even here in the Hamilton area, are, are suggesting what a great job your workers have done over the last uh, five months to deal with this and basically do whatever needs to be done. If it means do, you know double shifts or roaring over here or whatever the case might be, yeah, fine. If that's what it takes to beat this thing, that's what we're going to do. So this is this is not as if, well, you know, these guys just aren't cooperating, so we need legislation to make sure that they do. It's it's just the opposite, and and I, I again, you know, we have to question the motivation in a situation like this uh, about exactly where this is going on, and you know, this is the reality here is that this is a majority government. So you know, if they want to let, introduce this and if they want to push this through, they're going to unless there's a lot of public pressure. No, I agree, Bill. Um, you know, I've heard some different stories from uh, employers and hospitals in the north and and uh, and outside of Toronto how they have been taking advantage of, of what the government put in place under the Emergency Protection and Civil Protection Act, or Civil, uh, Civil Protection Act. But in Hamilton, we've worked with the employer. We understood, and the needs of the community came first. The frontline workers knew that. They sacrificed. They didn't get to see their families. They didn't take vacation. They canceled it so they could have all hands on deck and helping out. The employer knows that. They've, they've had discussions with me over this. And, and they've agreed that if they ever, ever had to come where they had to invoke something like this, it would be after all uh, avenues have been exhausted, which is good to see. But we need possibly employers to stand to the government and say, no, 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 we don't need it. Amend Bill 195 because they do have that power to amend it before they, uh, they vote on it. And, and we can change this. We don't need to, to keep pushing and pushing at the, at the frontline workers and the different sectors. They're already stressed enough. Ontario, I think, has done a good job in containing this. And they're, they're talking about a second wave. And God forbid, you know, if there is one. But they're prepared. The frontline staff will be there. But don't burn them out over the summer by cancelling vacations, cancelling their leave. So when a second wave does come, they're so stressed out that they have to go off sick. That's what the government's forcing people to do. We can't have that. We need our, our workers fresh and ready for the second wave. And this is the time. We've got a small little lull. We shouldn't let our guard down. But this is the time. Clinics are opening. Surgeries are up. People can get in and, and get the operations that they so, so need and have been put on hold. But the workers need some rest, too. You can't run a horse wide open without it eventually falling down. And this is what the government's trying to do. They're trying to impose their will on the people of Ontario for no good reason. We have to stand up to them. Dave, when I've talked with the... With folks like you and, and your provincial counterpart, Michael Hurley, about the situations like this. Uh, and, I, and I hear some of the stories about how the people, the, your members are actually dealing with this and how they're working cooperatively. Uh, my impression is you don't need legislation to do this. If we do have a second wave and things get bad again, as you know, we, and we don't want to see that happen, 
you don't need a, a bill to do this. What you do is you sit down with the managers of, of the facilities and say, look, we're going to need to do this. And you guys, you're, you're, you're open to that. Let's have that discussion. I mean, because your first goal here, of course, is let's make this work and let's make sure that the, you know, the health care is being delivered in a way that we have to deliver it in situations like this. You don't have to enforce something like this. You can. There's a cooperation between management and, and, and your workers in situations like this. And this, this is why it's, it's really unnecessary to even introduce legislation like this. It's totally unnecessary. The relationship that, uh, that we have with the hospital now, we've, we've got long-term cares and retirement homes that could go into, uh, into a red light situation. We have teams of people that have volunteered, and if we have to redeploy people, we understand that. We don't need legislation to tell us that you have to do it. We have people that have volunteered, so we've got teams on standby for long-term care and retirement homes, and we've worked with the employer to get these together so everybody is ready. And sometimes we had to bend the collective agreement, but that's what we do in situations like this. But if we have a master that's hitting us with a stick from the government telling us to do this, it's not a good environment. It's not uh, what we need. We have to have a government that's willing to work with us, just like we're working with the employer and the employer's working with us so we have a good relationship. It's the people in our, in our community that we're looking after. And the government needs to look out. And sometimes they have to stay out of things like this. They did at the beginning put the emergency measures in, fair enough, relax them. They've stopped the emergency measures. They've agreed there's no emergency anymore. So why this? Other than there's an ulterior motive here. Well, I hate to think of what that might be. Uh, anyway, we'll follow up on this, and uh, we, again, we'll encourage our listeners, uh, look into this, uh, call your MPP, uh, whatever jurisdiction you're in, and uh, talk to them about this and uh, just see what kind of reaction we're going to get on this. Uh, Dave, good luck with this. Uh, we'll stay in touch and see how the government responds over the next little while. Thanks so much uh, for the time today, though. Greatly appreciate it. I appreciate your help, and thanks, everybody. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some strange goings on in Washington over the last couple of days. Uh, it's probably a headline you could use almost every day, but uh, it seems to be getting worse uh, rather than better. Uh, today in the, uh, the Washington Post, there's an op-ed uh, for the nation's top health officials uh, took the extraordinary step of uh, going after Donald Trump in the piece that they wrote, uh, all of them suggesting, of course, that uh, Trump is politicizing uh, what should be going on. Uh, the four former CDC directors, Center for Disease Control directors, uh, warned against what they call the tragic indictment of the CDC's efforts as President Donald Trump and top coronavirus task force officials seek to reopen the nation's schools amid the raging pandemic. Uh, and on the other side of that coin, uh, there's suggestions that people within the White House are actually behind a uh, smear campaign against Dr. Uh, Anthony Fauci, who has been very outspoken, of course, about the uh, the government's actions on COVID-19. Reggie Cicchini joins us. Reggie, of course, is a Washington producer and correspondent with Global News in Washington, D.C. Always a pleasure, Reggie. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Good to have you with us. So this is this is all out war. I mean, uh, the other day we had, of course, uh, you know, Robert Mueller with his op-ed piece about Trump's administration to do with Roger Stone. But the health issue and the COVID nineteen issue and the way it's being handled uh, is is becoming, I guess, the battleground right now for for the Trump administration uh, versus well, just about anybody with any scientific background. Yeah, and look, you know, the, the Trump administration and the president himself are really not doing themselves any favors by the way that they're uh, trying to get communications out when it comes to dealing with this crisis. I mean, just yesterday, the president retweeted, uh, you know, a, a washed up 
uh, game show host Chuck Woolery, who said that the uh, among a number of people across the United States that the CDC is lying about COVID-19. And then here we have former uh, four former uh, directors of the CDC who worked under Democrat and Republican presidents saying that their job is, uh, you know, and the thousands of people who work in the organization are there to adapt policies that local and, and state governments can then adapt, adapt to make uh, decisions based on their own people. Uh, you know, the president and the people around him are simply doing potentially more damage by just not acknowledging the severity of the situation. Yeah, I saw the tweet that uh, that Trump retweeted from Chuck Woolery too. I mean, this is the guy that, that people don't remember. This is the guy that hosted the Dating Game uh, back on TV back in the uh, the 1960s and 70s. So I guess that makes him a, an expert on infectious diseases uh, because he was pretty you know damning about what it was going on. But you know, the op-ed piece today, Reggie, was rather interesting too. They they say that uh, listen, we, meaning the medical community, are facing two opponents: COVID-19 and also political leaders and others attempting to undermine the Center for Disease Control. Uh, that, that pretty much draws the battle lines here, doesn't it? Yeah, look, that op-ed, it says that, you know, disregard for public health uh, is leading to a sharp rise in infections and deaths. And that's not something that the CDC is simply just pulling out of the clouds and putting on the paper. That is a grim and, and kind of ongoing reality that's being thrown into the face of Americans from coast to coast. There are a growing number of people that are dying. There are more than 135,000 people dead. 3.3 million cases uh, were to have been discovered. And just yesterday, 13% of all confirmed cases in the world were discovered in just three states. Again, these are health agencies and organizations that have been put in place to protect the American public and the undermining of them by the most powerful person in the country does a disservice to everyone. It, it also indicates something that you've been reporting for months now is is this pandemic has raged reggie and it's it, and it, the, i guess the key word here is loyalty uh and you know whether it was james comey or now anthony fauci uh the trump administration and specifically the president himself uh, demand loyalty to him not to the constitution not to the oath that they take the hippocratic uh, oath of, of course you know, the, that all doctors will take in situations like this uh, if you don't sing the, the same song sheet that he's singing from uh, you're the enemy of the white house that seems to be the case and Fauci's fallen into that uh, that that column right now yeah, absolutely. He has. You know, the, the White House yesterday, uh, via words of the press secretary, said uh, that there is kind of no ongoing dispute between the president and Fauci. This is not a one versus the other situation. Uh, and, and she kind of disregarded the quote unquote opposition research that had been handed to reporters over the weekend to try and uh, discredit Dr. Anthony Fauci. I mean, even the president yesterday said that he thinks that Dr. Fauci is a nice person, but had to go on and say, but I think he's been wrong a lot of the time. Uh, and this is uh, causing problems not only amongst health experts uh, in the country, but it's also causing problems for uh, Americans who are simply looking for answers. And we've seen this now reflected in polls where, you know, 67 percent of Americans trust what Dr. Anthony Fauci says. And, you know, reading into that, it's likely because there is a word doctor before Anthony Fauci, where President Donald Trump does not have a medical background, which is why there are, uh, you know, roughly only a quarter of, of Americans actually trust what he has to say. And this feud with Dr. Fauci, this feud with science, this feud with anybody who doesn't agree with what the president says uh, is, is damaging and could potentially have a deadly consequence. And we've seen this, not, not that there are very many briefings anymore about COVID, they, they seem to have gone the way of, of the dodo bird, uh, and, but the reality here is uh, Fauci hasn't been on the podium, we're told he hasn't talked to the, pro to the president in months now, 
Uh, but the, those who are, including, you know, Dr. Redfield, who is still there, uh, they have to toe the party line here. They have to basically reinforce whatever Donald Trump says about situations like this. Uh, these are people that know better, but if you want to keep your job, I guess, uh, this, this is basically what you have to do. Yeah, and we've been seeing this play out for months now. You're right, Dr. Fauci hasn't been at the podium, he hasn't talked to the president, but we also have to remember that with the exception of a coronavirus task force briefing that took place last week at the Department of Education about school reopenings, uh, there really hasn't been a full-fledged task force briefing, uh, notably at the White House, since the end of April, because the administration moved beyond the health crisis to turn this into uh, an economic situation and now turn it into uh, you know, some kind of revamp. Uh, education situation to get kids back into the school. Uh, but there has been, you know, for four years now, a fear or an unwillingness of people who are in the Trump administration or in the president's circle to be able to speak their mind, fearing that if they do undermine the president, they could find themselves either on the other side of a door or potentially out of a job. Uh, you know, someone like Dr. Fauci doesn't really have to worry. It, it would be difficult for the president to fire him because he's a career civil servant. Uh, but at the end of the day, those that are still close to the president, even including people like Admiral Giroir, who was on uh, NBC today, when he was asked about the president's tweet, uh, retweet of Chuck Woolery, uh, Admiral Giroir still couldn't kind of go against what the president said and tried to kind of tiptoe and dance around it. And again, those are dangerous things to do. How is that playing with the American public? I mean, because they're, they're getting two messages here. It, it's Even though Dr. Fauci hasn't been on that podium and they haven't have had conversations between he and the president, uh, Dr. Fauci's been on just about every uh, talk show and on every network over the last three or four days, really reinforcing his message that, look, we're in deep trouble here. We're going the wrong way. Uh, yet the, the message from the White House, and, and I heard the phrase the president used the other day, is we are transi- transitioning to greatness. In other words, the worst is behind us. Uh, who's believing whom here? Well, I mean, look, that, that same conversation with Admiral Giroir this morning, he used the phrasing uh, that the United States is turning a corner and that they see light at the end of the tunnel, kind of ignoring the science that says that uh, deaths are likely going to spike in the next couple of weeks, given the fact that caseloads are increasing at such an exponential rate right now. But those are the tones that we hear from this now pared down and infrequent visits from the coronavirus task force, which is why Dr. Anthony Fauci has really taken it upon himself to be what he calls a so-called truth teller. He's going to go on TV. He says that, you know, he's not really afraid to go up against the president. And I think that that is resonating across a a better part of the country. You know, uh, there was a poll out there that showed that, you know, eight in 10 Democrats trust what Dr. Anthony Fauci has to say, but so too do more than 50 percent of Republicans. And I think that is important for trying to get these health messages across because the United States is not, according to all health experts that we've spoken to, turning a corner. There is no light at the end of the tunnel right now because there are still a forecast for upwards of 200,000 Americans to die within the next 60 days. Well, and the numbers are right there, Reggie, as you've been telling us over the last uh, couple of weeks now. Uh, when you look at places like Texas, and we happen to had a, a infectious disease specialist from the University of Texas on the program the other day, uh, who said, I, I heard what the president said, you know, that we've turned the corner. He says, I'm looking at the numbers here right now. Uh, in one of the Houston newspapers I, I read the other day, the obituary section was like 15, 20 pages long. And now that's not all COVID deaths, but an awful lot of them are. Uh, that's not turning the corner. I mean, the reality that I think a lot of people are facing these days is that they are still in crisis mode, but the White House seems oblivious to that. 
oblivious to it uh, and also simply refusing to accept or, or take any kind of responsibility for the fact that the country is in the position that it's in right now. I mean, look, at the end of the day, the cases are rising. And the reason uh, the cases continue to rise and deaths continue to rise is because testing, according to most health experts, is still inadequate. Uh, to try and get this virus under control. You know, uh, uh, in certain parts of the country, notably in Texas and in Florida, the amount of tests that are being done, uh, according to one doctor, are only about 17% of where the testing needs to be if they want to try and get some kind of a handle on this virus. But the secondary issue that's coming up now, and notably with testing, is that results are taking uh, you know, upwards of two weeks to get back to people. And that is putting more people at risk if those people are out walking around potentially spreading a virus because labs are now overwhelmed with the sheer number of tests that are coming in. So when you hear the president say that testing is doing great or I told people to step back on testing or America is doing the best, and then you hear Dr. Anthony Fauci say, well, that's simply not the case, that is concerning for Americans. You've been also reporting about, and I'm glad you brought it up this morning here, about the school situation. The, the president wants the schools to reopen, uh, assuming that that's going to put him in, in a good light with voters as they head into the fall and, of course, the election coming up in November. Yet uh, the pushback here is if they don't cooperate, he's going to withhold funding from school boards. Uh, a number of governors, uh, including Mary Cuomo, or Andrew Cuomo and many others, are pushing back against this. What's, what's the status on that right now? What's, what's the public buy-in? Uh, whose side are they on in situations like this? Well, look, there are a growing number of Americans who are, uh, you know, they, they may want to get their kids back into school, but there is a fear to what happens once those kids are back into those classrooms. Uh, there was a study out today that seven in 10 parents uh, have a fear or anxiety about their kids returning to school, uh, which is why we're seeing areas like uh, California, the largest, the second largest school district in the country, LA United, uh, Unity, uh, as well as San Diego saying that they will not be returning kids to school in the fall. It will be a continued online education, something that we're hearing uh, from uh, a growing number of states. And this does kind of you know, fly in the face of this threat from the president and from the education secretary, Betsy DeVos, that funding will be cut off for these schools. It is a, a, a somewhat baseless threat, though, because funding for schools oftentimes uh, is from both the state level and from the municipal level with tax dollars. They may lose some of their federal funding, but, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these schools simply aren't prepared and aren't able to ensure the safety of these kids, especially in schools that, uh, you know, maybe over 100 years old. Uh, so school administrators are actively trying to work to figure out what's going to be the best course to go, which is why so many of them are saying staying at home may simply be the safest. Yeah, I, I saw the interview with uh, Secretary DeVos, I guess it was on CNN over the weekend on one of the, the morning shows, the Sunday morning shows. And it's got to be frustrating for for you, Reggie, down in Washington, trying to get the truth and get the facts. And and the, the spokespeople, whether it's Secretary DeVos or others, they have their talking points, and that's all they say. I mean, she, all she repeated during that interview, and I, I know you saw it as well, was we just want the schools to reopen. They, you know, they asked about the safety of the of the students and the teachers and the the other people. She wouldn't even address that. It was just this is what the president wants. This is what we're going to do. And th that tunnel vision is is causing a lot of problems. It is causing problems, but it is no surprise, and it's something that we've now been seeing for months. Look, the, the, the secretary's inability to answer how students would be safe inside these schools that have no ability to be able to enforce kind of social distancing or any kind of mitigation effort, uh, it's that same tunnel vision that we saw when it came to states reopening several months ago. And the CDC put forward that gated criteria that said, here's step one, here's step two, here's step three, and people just simply ignored it and went to what they wanted to do, uh, but couldn't answer why they weren't doing it or why they weren't paying attention to it. It was simply a, here's what we want to do. Uh, and now 
we're hearing those same messages coming from not only Secretary DeVos, but also from the president himself, who are offering no concrete steps. And when there were steps put forward by the CDC for reopening schools, the president called them impractical. And the CDC buckled. I mean, Dr. Redfield stated, with, uh, standing right beside the president, yeah, they are rather onerous. Maybe they're his, they're his own recommendations. Now they're going to revise them, basically, to, to kowtow to what the president would like to see. Yeah, and, and it, look, both the vice president and the, the CDC director said that they didn't want these recommendations to be any kind of uh, uh, way or, or uh, uh, opportunity for schools to remain closed. But at the end of the day, these, these schools are supposed to be using these guidelines to figure out whether or not it's safe to have kids in the classrooms. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a negating point going back and forth with each other. But again, when you have the CDC putting recommendations out, but the president saying they're impractical, but then offering no secondary set of recommendations to keep kids safe in this country, it kind of is, it is, is no steps forward and several steps back. Reggie, you mentioned a, a stat that I, I found rather interesting about uh, how 67% of people support Dr. Fauci, uh, which leaves about 33% clearly uh, that are behind Donald Trump, which uh, interestingly enough is just around the number of, of that Trump base, anywhere from 35 to 40%. Th- those people aren't going anywhere, and they're going to believe everything that, that the president says. But it does seem to indicate that the, the tide is turning, especially in some of the key states like Florida and, uh, and Michigan and Ohio and places like that where, you know, Biden's actually got a significant lead. Texas, I guess, it's pretty much a dead heat. But uh, the, the White House may not want to talk about this, but they can't be oblivious to the fact that they seem to be losing this, this battle. No, and look, some of that, that support that is, has been behind the president for four years uh, is very slowly starting to erode. We're seeing a popularity for the president, even within his own base, uh, now kind of hovering at that very low 30 percentile range. And that would be uh, one of the lowest points since the president took office, uh, which is why you're seeing him kind of ignore the issues of coronavirus right now, uh, mildly weighed into the issue of getting people back to school, but really kind of going hard on, uh, on secondary issues in the country that he's trying to make the first issue, whether or not it's police activity, whether or not it's the, the dismantling, destruction and removal of Confederate statues around the country. He's really trying to play and pander to that ever shrinking base that he has. Uh, and whether or not it's simply a last ditch effort to try and get whatever kind of support he can or to just try and move the situation beyond uh, the virus and the, the, the economic damage that this virus has done for the last several months. I mean, there are several plays that his uh, that his campaign is trying for right now. But you're right when he's losing in areas like Florida and Michigan and watching Texas now become a potential toss up state. These are problems for uh, the president and with very little time to try and rectify those problems. I always look forward to your reporting, Reggie, and uh, great to have you on the show to get your perspective and, uh, and add some, uh, some, some perspective on what's going on here, too. Uh, thanks so much for this today. Thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.